0: Welcome, Maranatha. I'm so happy to have the opportunity to open God's Word with you this week in worship. And I wanted to just take this time to welcome you in. Uh, Maybe this is the first time that you've uh, joined us for worship together at Maranatha, but we want to say welcome to you. And my name is David Appelt. I'm one of the members here, and I'm so excited to open the Word with you. You can go ahead and start turning to John chapter 10, verse 31, as we're going to pick up in our series through the book of John. And as you're turning there, let me just say you can also fill out the digital connect card that is located just beneath this video. And that is a way for us to get to know you and how we can pray for you, how we can help you during this time, how we can care for you. So please take the time, uh, just a few seconds to fill out that digital connect card that is right below this video. As well, we're also going to keep communicating about our plan to regather in person And that is set right now for July 12th. If you've been getting our emails every Wednesday, you'll see details start to come out about that plan as we go forward. So pay attention to those. And if you um, have any questions, just contact us at the church and ask us uh, what the plan is. As well, we want to continue to be in prayer right now for our communities, for our cities, uh, for our governors, for our um, leaders, as well as for one another. And so I just want to take a quick moment to pray about so many of the things that we've seen over the last, uh, not only three months, but particularly over the last few weeks. So uh, pray with me. Father God, we uh, come before you uh, this morning, and uh, we might still have a very heavy heart as we consider what we have um, seen happen in our culture, in our country in our cities, uh, maybe even in our own backyards and ways in the last few weeks. Lord, we saw the violence that started with the death of George Floyd. We saw the violence that continued in cities and even more people losing their lives. Lord, the fear, the anger, the heartbreak that we feel in this moment. Lord, we pray that you would comfort those of us who are mourning, you would comfort those of us who feel like we do not know what to do and we do not always know what to say. Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom to our leaders to act. I pray that you would give them wisdom to act in accordance with your word, in accordance with your justice, in accordance with your wisdom. I pray that you would give us, as your church, as your body, Lord, first of all, within our local church, you would give us a desire to care for one another, for our families, for our friends in a real intentional way. I pray that beyond that you would give us, as your church, a passion to go into a world that is hurting and is in need and give us the passion, the desire, the wisdom, the drive, the love for Christ that we need to go into this world and bring the hope and bring healing that only Christ can provide for us. God, we ask most of all that you would use this ground for revival, even though right now, if we're honest, it feels like it'd be hard to see good things happening in ways. God, I pray that you would use this ground for revival. And Lord, we know that you are capable of that, and we ask that revival would start in our hearts. It would start in our homes, in our families. And in our cities, that you would revive us, that you would shape us into Christ, that you would let us bear much fruit as we go forward, and that this might be a time when we see the gospel advance like never before. God, that is our greatest hope, that the gospel would advance like never before. In the face of mourning, in the face of pain, in the face of injustice, in the face of grief in the face of fear that the gospel would go forth like never before. We ask this all in the name of Christ, and we give thanks that we have a hope in him, and we have a peace in him that is unshakable in this time and for all time. We give thanks in his name. Amen. We just want to take a moment uh, before we dig into the word to celebrate the peace that we have in Christ. So take a moment to... Uh, text someone in the church, to call someone, to tell them, uh, that to to remind them of the peace that we have been given, that we can celebrate this together, and then we'll join back together and open up the Word. Well, Welcome back in, and thank you for taking the time to text one another, greet one another. We look forward to the day very soon when uh, we can do that while at least seeing each other. And we're going to dig into the word here together. John chapter 10, starting in verse 31. And we're going to pick up right there. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man Was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pray with me, Father. We come before you now, and we recognize that we are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to illumine in our minds this text that we just read. But we recognize that this holy, your Holy Spirit, inspired this text and preserved this text, and has now. That we are dependent upon him to have our eyes open to its truth, to its beauty, to the beauty of our Savior, to the beauty of our salvation that we've been given. So that we ask that you would do just that as we open your word, that you would, and that you would magnify in our eyes the beauty of Jesus Christ. You would magnify in our eyes the glory of your word, the glory of the salvation you've given us. Or be at work in our hearts. We thank you that you are so faithful to watch over your word to perform it. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, the incarnate word of God. Amen. So we step into this story today, and in all honesty, we're barely out of the last sentence. And if, you, if we just did last week's sermon, if we just extended one more sentence, then you can almost picture this as a bit of a cliffhanger to the end of a season of a TV show where Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and then you start to see the crowd around him murmur and pick up stones, and then the screen fades to black, and you're not quite sure what's going to happen next. See, the crowd, we might read through this story, and because it's just written on a page, and it's just got periods at the end of the sentences, we might not envision them shouting and yelling, But in reality, for a crowd to all of a sudden desire to pick up rocks and weapons and throw them at somebody until they are dead, that is not a quiet, formal debate happening between Jesus and this crowd. This is a mob. This is a crowd of people that are extremely angry and animated. That's what we set foot into as we read this story. And as we go through this passage, we see that this mob is convinced that the words of Jesus are not to be embraced, but to be hated. And in that way, we know that things haven't changed much in the last 2,000 years, where crowds of people just can be completely convinced they are right, and they can be completely convinced that the words of God are not to be embraced, but hated. And they might be completely Wrong, but they're sure that they don't like God. So we know things haven't changed much. I want us to work our way through the bulk of this text, and then we're actually going to work our way in, into two specific sentences that kind of bring up some ideas that I really uh, weighed on my heart this week as I prepared this message, and I would like to call special attention to them. The entirety of this, this sermon can be condensed into that we must submit to Jesus Christ the incarnate, unbreakable, and victorious Word of God. Put another way, the Word of God is incarnate, the Word of God is unbreakable, and the Word of God is victorious. That's what this is all teaching us. And so this story picks up as, as Jesus has declared to them, the good news that he gives to his sheep eternal life and that no one can snatch his sheep out of his hand, which is great news. And then he says, I and the Father are one. And then as they pick up stones to stone them, Jesus makes his defense. Now remember, they're mad at him that he is a man, allegedly he is a man making himself into God when in reality, Jesus Christ is the true God who made himself into man. They could not have the entire situation flipped on its head more. Jesus Christ is the true God who made himself into man, like man, so that he could reconcile sinful mankind to himself. And he says this as he quotes from Psalm 82. I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? And they say, it is not because of your works, it is because of your words. It's because of what you are teaching. So Jesus says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. That's from Psalm 82, and we're actually going to turn there so we can read through this psalm together. This psalm is written by Asaph, who wrote a number of psalms and as you see the word gods in here, it is lowercase g, it is a plural s because this word that is translated as gods is another word for a king or a ruler, a judge or a prince, but it's also a word that could be used to describe the pagan gods, the lower gods in the pagan hierarchy of, of, of their conception of God. And so the psalmist uses this word, to denote the high office that these rulers are given in the psalm. Let's read through Psalm 82 together. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked." they have neither knowledge nor understanding they walk about in darkness all the foundations of the earth are shaken and i said you are god's sons of the most high all of you nevertheless like men you shall die and fall like any prince arise o god and judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations this psalm i think is three things i think first this psalm is a bit of a lament a lament for the fact That the author sees all these rulers, especially the rulers of Israel, failing to judge justly according to the authority God has given them. This psalm is a lament because God cares about it when his law is not followed. God cares about it when humans are treated unjustly because he made them and he put his image on them. He cares about it when his law is not followed even when it's not followed by those of high authority. Secondly, this psalm is a reminder to us, a much needed reminder that God rules over rulers and he judges over judges and that he will inherit the earth and that he will judge the earth. So God is reminding us in this psalm that in the midst of all the sinful, wicked rulers, all the sinful, wicked kings, all the sin that we can see that goes unjudged, that goes Um, uninhibited around us, it is a reminder to us that God rules over the rulers and He judges over the judges and that nothing escapes His sight and that we can be sure that He will inherit the earth. That is an encouraging reminder to us if we have felt at all in the last few months like we're not so sure that He's still in control. He is. Third, this psalm is a reminder the rulers, and it's a warning, that they are supposed to rule with justice, specifically God's justice. See, this is a reminder that rulers and leaders, just like every other person, every single one of us, is accountable to one standard and one standard alone, that they are not um, enslaved to a cultural standard or a contemporary standard or a contemporary ethic or whatever they kind of come up with in their mind. This is a reminder that they are accountable to God, just as we are accountable to God. All humans, including those given positions of power, are responsible to act justly by enacting all things according to God's word. And I know that the last four months, in, in particular the last 14 days, have probably given us all plenty of ammo to, to think over what is right? What is wrong? What role does the Bible have to say about this? What does the church do even in the public square? And our consciences as we wrestle with these questions might be different. That's, that might be the, the, the least shocking thing you've ever heard, that our consciences might come up a little different. They won't be uniform in all this. However, what must be uniform among us is a commitment to the Word of God as we go through these questions. We have to ask ourselves, have I done the hard work to allow God to shape my conscience here with any given issue that comes across our plate? Or am I informed by something other than God? That is the question that we must uniformly ask ourselves. Even though our consciences might be different, our uniform commitment to God's Word must be held by all of us because these words mean something to God. They mean a lot to God. When God talks about injustice, he is a perfectly holy being, completely disgusted with injustice. So when he says unjustly, or when he says the wicked, he's not telling the kings that they are supposed to act in according to what they feel is unjust, what they don't like, or what they feel is wicked, or who they don't like. Not who they feel like rescuing, not whose rights they feel like maintaining. He's telling them to act in accordance with the standard that he has given to them. Because if not, they will walk about in darkness. And church, right now, if we are not committed to asking the question, what does God say, we will find ourselves walking about in darkness. And we might have great intentions in that matter, but we, can, we will still be lost in darkness because we only have one source of light. We only have one source of light. We only have one foundation that can't be shaken. So we must ask ourselves, do I know what God says? This is the psalm, that Jesus quotes to those around him. Maybe as a bit of a reminder that they have not been following it. And that maybe as a bit of a reminder to the leaders within earshot that they're not doing a particularly good job of remembering this psalm. His argument in this text is what we would call an argument from the lesser to the greater. Something of the smaller, an analogy between something smaller to something larger. And Jesus says, If the judges of the earth are called gods because they're given the word of God and told to enact it, how much more should you call me the word of God and the son of God because I am the incarnate word of God? Put it another way, he's saying, If princes who the word of God came to can be called gods, how much more ought you call me God since I am the word of God? Jesus then grounds his argument in the testimony of Scripture, in the testimony of his miracles. As he says, If I am not doing the works of the Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. He counts it as sufficient that they have the Scriptures and his signs. He says that is enough proof. What more could you want? Because Jesus Christ is the prophet that has been proven. He is the one who has been consecrated and sent into the world. He is our only hope of salvation. He is our only Messiah. The question is, do we believe him? The question is not whether he's proven. It's not whether he's powerful. It's not whether he is mighty to save, able to save. It's not whether he is the Messiah. It's whether or not we will believe him Or blaspheme him. It's whether we will bow to him or blaspheme him. It's whether we will submit to him or stone him. Because Jesus Christ is the Messiah sent for us. He is the Messiah sent for sinners like you and me. He is the Messiah who came knowing all that he would have to give up, As it says in 2 Corinthians that he gave up his riches to become poor that through his poverty we might become rich. And that poverty is not just materials, it is is far above materials. That poverty that he took on is leaving the glory of heaven behind so that he could come and experience even more poverty as he suffered at the hands of sinful men, that he was saving and that he experienced even more poverty as he felt the entirety of the wrath of God poured upon him, weighing every ounce of sin that was due for his people. He came to bear all that poverty that we might experience riches, that we might experience grace that we might experience eternal life, that we might experience being set free from sin, that is the Messiah who has been consecrated and set, sent into the world. And so today, if you don't know him, you have to ask, am I going to stone him? Am I going to pick up a stone and reject this salvation, this grace, right in front of me? Or is this the day when I recognize that my sin, though it has alienated me from God, it now has been Healed. It has now been absorbed. It has now been removed by Jesus Christ. Because everything said about this man is true. This became my favorite verse in this passage. And it is, um, in some respects, this maybe insignificant-seeming verse. 41. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. Now they are saying something pretty simple, that John the Baptist in his message when he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah was absolutely true. They were saying every prophecy that was ever made about this Messiah, it is true in this man, Jesus Christ. That is what they are saying. And for us, we need to take a step back and and consider all the things to us about our Messiah every single thing that is true. Think about it. Think about the fact that the way that he heals the sick is true. The way that Jesus gives sight to the blind is true. The way that he redeems the sinner is true. The way that Jesus suffers the weight of sin is true. The way that Jesus removes the debt that we owe for sin, no matter how high that debt is, Is true. The way that he paid for our sin at once in full is true. The way that he takes himself, he takes upon himself the yoke of our sin so that he can give us the yoke of his rest. The way that he brings us into the family of God through adoption. The way that Jesus Christ is a sympathetic and perfect high priest is true. The way that he is making out of all peoples and tribes and tongues and nations one new people to be perfected in the new heavens and the new earth is true. The way that Jesus Christ broke down every wall of hostility between us and God and then between us and one another is true. The way that Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost all who put their trust in him is true. And the way that Jesus mediates on behalf of us before the throne of God the Father is true. The way that Jesus made and sustains all things is true. The way that Jesus took on the form of a servant, not counting his equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage, but he humbled himself to, to be obedient unto death, even death on the cross is true. The way that Jesus Christ is now exalted high above every name is true. In the way that Jesus Christ, one day as he is seated on his throne, will have every nation, every soul in front of him, and every single one of them will be bowing their knee to him, proclaiming that he is the Lord of lords. That is true. Everything said about this man is true. We need to remember that Today, remember the incarnate, unbreakable, victorious word of God. Remember Jesus Christ. Everything said about him is true. I want to turn our attention now to focusing in on the word of God being unbreakable. This is one of two um, tiny little phrases or three tiny little phrases in this passage that I think are great for us to focus on. See it in verse 35. Jesus says if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. The word that he uses there when describing scripture as he says it cannot be broken, that word is a word that means to break, obviously, it means to untie, to loosen or relax or it means to destroy. And so Jesus is saying, he's reminding them, you know scripture cannot be broken, so if it's in here, you know it's reliable. The question we need to ask ourselves is, do we believe in God's word the way that Jesus does? As as Jesus said in Matthew 22, as he spoke to the Pharisees, uh, he said, did you not read what God said to you? as he spoke of the Old Testament. Did you not read what, the, what God said to you? He counts the scriptures as if God himself is speaking directly. That's the authority that our Savior has in his belief of the word of God. And he follows it up here as he says that it is unbreakable. Do we believe that the scriptures are not breakable by our intelligence? Do we believe that our scriptures are not broken by broken by the fact that we live in such modern times? Do we believe that the Bible is completely perfect, that it is inerrant, that it is preserved for us, that it is reliable, understandable, clear, and sufficient for us? Do we believe that the Word of God is steady, unchanging, undegraded, unalterable, and unsurpassable? That's how Jesus thinks of the Word. We must believe that God's Word is, is the first and last authority for all standards of faith, practice, and life. It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 10 through 17. You, however, this is Paul writing to Timothy. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it The world around us may go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul says, stay right where you are in the scriptures. They are breathed out by God, literally breathed out by God. His very word for us. And right now, our current social climate, just like every social climate, must be dealt with by scripture. Anything else we try will be a band-aid because the Scripture is the only thing that's not broken. The Scripture is the only thing that is unbreakable. The Scripture is the only thing that's offered to us from God Himself, the One who made all things. But the Word of God is unbroken. I know that it's easy for us, um, because we're a Reformed church, it's really easy for us to think like, that other churches have such a low view of Scripture, but we have to be cautious about whether or not we are really living out that commitment to Scripture, whether we are really living out that belief in its, in its sufficiency, in its power, in its authority. Just because we have Baptist on the, in, on the church sign or Reformed on the church sign doesn't do anything if we're not living out that commitment to the Scriptures. The last thing we can look at in here after we looked at the incarnate word of God and the unbreakable word of God is the victorious word of God. Verses 10, 40 through 42 back in the book of John. He went away, Jesus did, again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything said, everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So Jesus slips out of their hands. It doesn't really give us details about how he did it, but he did. He slips out of their hands, and then he goes on preaching to a new crowd. But that verse 42, the story ends with many believed in him there. This story goes from stoning to salvation really quickly. And maybe we need to remember that that Jesus will be victorious in his mission. And for us right now, he is victorious through his church. Jesus uses us in his mission, and his mission is a victorious one. Even though hostility is a reality, victory is also a reality. Even though hostility is a reality for us, victory is a reality for us. And yes, right now we are in an extremely unique cultural moment but many will believe in him. We might not see how, and it might not, it might even come as it looks like the word of God is failing, but many will believe. That's the power of the gospel. Look at Jesus's words in verse 38. Jesus says, he is in the Father, and the Father is in him. This is the same language that we saw earlier in verse 29, but We all are in verse 30, but it's also language that we will see as we go through chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17. Some of the most powerful chapters for the Christian life, I believe. And that language of Jesus being one with the Father, being in the Father, is the same language or similar language that he uses when he talks about us being found in Christ or Christ being in us the Holy Spirit being in us, His people. So the Holy Spirit, through the miracle of the gospel, has been placed in you today, if you know Him. And you can go out into the world and preach this good news. You can preach the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. He has come to save murderers. He has come to save drug addicts. He has come to save us um, who feel like our lives are already pretty cleaned up. He has come to save liars and idolaters and thieves and the greedy ones and the angry ones and the lying ones. He has come to save us. He has come to save, and we can take that news to the world around us. We can hold faithfully to the truth. We can love and serve in meekness, strength, justice, and joy because Christ is in us. Because Christ is in you, you can bear much fruit. And even more, because Christ stands behind the power of His Word and because He presides over the accomplishment of His mission, the gospel will bear much fruit. Do not forget the incarnate Word of God, the unbreakable Word of God, and the victorious Word of God. And don't forget that Christ is in you, that the Holy Spirit is in you to be empowered for mission, to be empowered and enabled to know Him, to know our Savior. Our Jesus Christ has come. He has saved us. He is the Word of God incarnate. He overcomes the blasphemy. He overcomes the hostility by His gospel. And he is faithful, he is sovereign, and he will come again. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you love us. That we, though we are sinners, though we are impure, though we were born in sin, though we were hostile to you, you came and saved us. Lord, you purposed from all eternity to save us. And not only to save us, but to save us at such great cost to yourself that you would send your Son to pay our price. Lord God, it is my prayer, it is our prayer that Jesus would be magnified in our eyes and in our hearts today, that we would see him as more beautiful, that we would believe him more deeply, Lord, that we would know you as Paul said, we would know you in the power of his resurrection. Lord, that with all the saints and the angels, as Paul said, that we would know what is the height and the depth and the width and the length. Lord, that we would know the fullness of Christ. And Lord, so that we would be changed, so that we would have hope, we would have peace, we would know with the assurance of forgiveness, and that you would empower us to bear much fruit as your disciples. Lord, we thank you that we have a belief and a trust in a victorious God, in a sovereign God, in a good, perfect Father. It is in the name of our King, Jesus Christ, we pray. The power of the Holy Spirit, who he has given to us. Amen. Peace be with you.